All right, let's go Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. If uh, you're the type that likes to bookmark everything, you should also know that we'll be in Ephesians 2 and Matthew 18. Go. All right. Romans chapter 12. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Uh, if you're watching us online right now, we'll put the text up on your screen when we get to that part of our time uh, together. If you don't own a Bible, don't have one that you can call your very own, uh, we like giving those uh, giving Bibles away around here too. Um, so get a hold of me before, we're, uh, before you walk out the door today and uh, we can fix that. We believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things. Chief among those important things is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. Uh, we want you to know God. We want everything in and around and through your life to be defined by Him, shaped by Him, uh, evaluated through the lens of knowing Him. And so uh, if you don't have a Bible of your very own, get a hold of me and uh, we can fix that. Um, so we are taking a break from our First Corinthians series for uh, just a little while. You know, just keep things fresh. Uh, we, we like to mix it up around here, I guess. Uh, we'll come back to it, Lord willing, uh, in June, it looks like. Um, but for the next several weeks, I want to focus our attention on helping us make sense of what I think are some incredibly practical things. Incredibly practical things. Uh, practical things in, in the life and, and regular rhythms of, of a church. And, and, and so... Um, I've got younger kids in my house right now. Um, I don't know about you, but I, I get the why question a lot. Anybody else? Or may, whether you have kids now or whether you used to have kids, I'm going to guess that you're incredibly familiar with the why question. All right? It's something that, that happens all the time. And sometimes, sometimes the, the why question uh, hits you as an annoyance, right? It's the thousandth time it's been asked in the last 20 minutes. All right? or, or am I the only one that gets that treatment? Okay, just checking. All right, um, sometimes it's, it hits you with a, a sense of annoyance, but sometimes, man, sometimes, sometimes the why question kind of lights you up. It, it, it sparks something in you, and it causes you to seriously wonder about, why do we do things a certain way? Why do we do this instead of that? Why do we do this in this way instead of that way? It causes you to step back and, Truly think through how the world works and the reasoning and the logic that tend to, to that led to doing something in a particular way. Things, things that maybe you had always taken for granted, just assumed. But now that you've thought on it a little bit, you kind of see how the pieces put together, right? There, there's some things like that in my heart and life. And, and so sometimes there's, there's these things that upon closer inspection, upon answering the why question, it ended up affirming a very clear reason why that, that produced that thing. And I think that reality is no less true in the church. I, I think there are things that we do here uh, lots of things that we do when we gather together, and lots of those things are, are, are passed down to us as traditions or maybe just the style in which we do things, and we don't ever really think about why we do them or why we do them a certain way. And so I, I want to spend the next several weeks, uh, probably eight or nine weeks of this, channeling our inner child and just asking the why question. But why this? But, but why that, right? Um, why do we do this and that? 
But before we go racing off, um, I think it'll be helpful for us to probably set some ground rules um, before we hit the go button. Because uh, at the end of the day, I think we're probably going to need some kind of framework to evaluate the quality of our answers. Uh, it's one thing to offer up a reason for doing something. It's another re- thing entirely to, to you know, like give a reason that actually leads to good things, to overall health and, and maturity. And so um, I, I sat down and thought through this for the last few weeks of, of coming up with a couple of measuring sticks, I think we can call them, measuring sticks, um, that'll, that'll help keep things, our answers for these questions in, in a much healthier place. And the first one is this. I think I've got some slides for them. Uh, the first one is this. Our reasons for doing something need to originate in and be ultimately shaped by the Bible rather than pragmatism. That's, I, I think, our first good, healthy measuring stick. Our reasons for doing something need to originate in and be ultimately shaped by the Bible rather than pragmatism. In other words, doing something because we think it's uh, wise or because it gets results in the moment, uh, in a particular moment, that, that can sometimes be a good thing, but it may not always be a good thing. Uh, human wisdom and results can only carry us so far. And, and the reason for that is because at the end of the day, our finite wisdom is always going to be insufficient for what is good and lovely on an eternal scale. It may be good and lovely for the next five minutes. It may even be good and lovely for the next 20 years, but we don't have the horsepower to pull off what is good and lovely on an eternity-sized measuring rod. And so we need help with that. We sometimes value things that are incredibly fleeting. Or am I the only one that's guilty of that? In fact, it happens more than just sometimes. So we need to actively guard ourselves against, the, uh, against that, that posture by chasing after what the Bible tells us to value. And that doesn't mean that biblical reasoning and what works are opposite things. They're quite often the very same thing. The Bible is incredibly functional. It's incredibly practical. And a lot of times what the Bible tells us to do is the most practical thing to do. But then again, sometimes that's not. Sometimes what the Bible tells us to do is an incredibly counterintuitive thing to do. Sometimes it's the exact opposite of what gets celebrated and applauded in our world. And so whenever we find ourselves in the place where we are forced to choose between the biblical ideal and and the pragmatic choice, well, the choice is not really one that we have to spend a lot of time thinking through. It's been made for us. The hard part, though, is keeping our eyes open to when those paths diverge and choosing swiftly, right? But there's a second framework Second measuring stick that I think we can use for evaluating the quality of our answers as we walk through the series, and it's this. Our actions need to be measured by what builds up the body rather than what seeks to expand the body. Second measuring stick. Our actions need to be measured by what builds up the body rather than what seeks to expand the body. Meaning uh, that what we do in this room, in this room, uh, is intended first and foremost to strengthen the church family we have rather than, or at least over and above, being attracted to those who aren't yet a part of the family. And again, this isn't automatically some kind of dichotomy that we always have to choose between. In a perfect world, the same action does both, right? It does, it does both. It builds up the body and it draws people in. But in the real world, that's not always the case. 
And so how does this posture play out? Well, it means that, that we are aware of the visitor. We, we love having the visitor here. In fact, we're going to spend a week of this series talking about how and why we show hospitality. And so this is baked into to what we're talking about for sure. So we're always aware of the visitor. and We want them to feel at home here. And we're always constantly inviting them deeper and deeper into the fold of what we're doing. But at the same time, what we're doing here isn't for them. They're not a participant in what's going on here. They're a witness to what's going on here. The gathering of the church body is ultimately for the church body. Now, Jesus may choose to use the attractiveness of what's going on when the body gathers to to win people into his kingdom. He's more than welcome to do so, and he seems to do so very often. But he's not tied to that. He doesn't have to use that, and he doesn't need what's going on here to do that. Evangelism can and does happen here, but, but the weekly gathering of the saints is not the tip of the evangelism spear. That happens outside of here where all the lost people are, right? We say this on a regular basis around here another way. Your friend doesn't need you to finally get him to church so I can tell him about Jesus. What your friend needs is for you to tell him about Jesus, And the church is here to train you and encourage you and be this wonderfully otherworldly example to show off to them on occasion. And outside of our regular gathering, churches rightly make a big old giant deal out of outreach things through other means. But at the end of the day, the Great Commission is a mandate for all of God's people, not the ones that are in charge of planning the weekly service, right? There's a difference there. So that means we will be intentionally conscious of the visitor and we will gladly do, uh, make everything accessible and approachable, easy to understand because a correctly functioning church should be attractive to those on the fringe. That's absolutely true. But the most attractive part of what we're doing here, what's happening in this room, is the fact that we are an otherworldly family that doesn't look anything at all like what they can find outside of this place. We operate different because we think different. Inviting, absolutely. Accessible, yes and amen. But we don't have to sell ourselves. We just do what we do and God does what he does. We focus on what God has called his people to do and we'll let him build his church through it. So that's measuring stick one and two. We've got a couple of things to work with, helpful paradigms that are now tucked firmly in our back pocket. And so biblical ideal over pragmatism and build up the body rather than expand the body, all right? So those are our two measurement rods for answering our but why questions. So what's the very first piece of our gathering that needs to get the but why treatment? Which, what are we going to start poking at this morning? Well, it's the gathering part, <laughs> right? That seems kind of obvious. The first piece that needs to be evaluated is the gathering part. A reality that I'm just going to go ahead and guess was likely taken for granted by a lot of people up until this last year. Right? If you remember, uh, about 10 months ago now in June, we gathered in this room for the very first time after the initial lockdown. Right? And I got up on this stage and I stood behind this little pub table thing and and. We opened up our Bibles and we looked at Hebrews 10 and we looked at Ephesians 3. And, and I made the argument then, back in June, that while there were wise and loving reasons to temporarily pause the gathering of the saints, the corporate gathering of the church, that the threshold for doing so ought to be incredibly, incredibly high because gathering, all right, quote unquote gathering, is a fundamental component of what a church is. It's not merely something we do, it's something we are. 
There's, there's a dramatic difference between those two understandings of things. A church is not something that gathers when it can. A church is something that is a gathering. When, whenever we see the word, ecle, uh, word church in the New Testament, the Greek word that's being translated there is the word ekklesia. All right, if you've spent enough time in church at all, you've come across that term. That term literally means a gathering. And the idea buried in that word ekklesia is that it's a gathering with a, with a specific political purpose. An obvious political purpose. It's not just a group of people who randomly found themselves in the same place at the same moment and and are now trying to figure out what to do. It's an intentional gathering of a group of people with the same loyalty and agenda. That's what's going on in that moment. And a lot of people have been trained to say things like, well, the church is a people, not a building. Sounds really cute. But it's only halfway true. I mean, it is true, but it's only kind of halfway true. Just, just like when a basketball team, like, like, uh, like a basketball team is still a team when the game is over. They all get in their cars. They go home. They didn't cease being a team in that moment. But it's the purposeful gathering to play basketball that makes them a team, right? Otherwise, it's just a bunch of sweaty dudes hanging out. It's not a basketball team if all they ever do is talk to each other on the internet. they got to get together and play basketball. In the same way, it's in the act of gathering together that the church becomes the church. Yes, it is a people. No, it's not a building. Teams can be scattered for a really good reason. Churches can be scattered sometimes for a really good reason. So it's correct that the church is a people, not a a building, but it's specifically a gathered people. And oftentimes, just spitballing here, it's really, really convenient for that gathered people to buy a building and choose to meet there. We'll call that a church too. So if I hadn't preached that sermon 10 months ago, we would have opened up Hebrews and we would have opened up Ephesians and I would have preached that sermon today. But I did preach that sermon 10 months ago. It's all in video. You can go find it. So what do we do now? If you're not convinced yet, you can go back and watch it on your own time, have fun. But this morning, I want to go ahead and assume that those things are trusted and true. I want to assume that you're convinced that that's what a church is and ought to be. And that we filed that away and we're good on it. And then I want to take the next step and give you three more reasons why we gather. Three more reasons, additional reasons we could call them why we gather. And to be clear, I think there are way more than three we could do a whole series on gathering and, and what that's in. I had to choose between some things and go with, oh, I think I'll do these three instead of these four or five. But I want to give you three more reasons this morning for why, uh, for why we gather. All right? Uh, and I want to, well, let's do this. We've already got it locked down. Let's go. Romans chapter 12. Reason number one. Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 3. The Apostle Paul says this, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. 
So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Let's call time out there. All right, so Paul, uh, speaking to the church at Rome, cautions the believers there uh, to not think too highly of themselves, right? And that they should have a, a more sober judgment of their spiritual maturity, and which I'll be honest, is a bold thing to write to people that you've never met, right? Like, hey, quit thinking so highly of yourselves. I've heard some things. But at the same time, I think it also makes perfect sense. Not only in the Roman culture that was receiving Paul's letter, but let's be honest, in our own culture as well. We don't, we don't look all that different from Rome. Nothing, absolutely nothing keeps us as busy these days as trying to prove to everybody else that we got it figured out. Right? We'll do everything we possibly can to make our polish look a little shinier than whoever we're standing next to. Definitely shinier than whoever else might be catching it all on the news feed. We work our tails off. And then Paul comes in with an illustration here, a body with many members, many parts, right? And the body that he's describing is the church. A singular organism made up of several distinct pieces and 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 all those pieces need each other that's the word that that we're going with here they need each other in order for the body to be healthy in other words there there is no such thing as don't you worry i'm i got it i'm independent like that in the church it doesn't make any sense at all in in church life i i I, i'm i've got my own things figured out you do you i'm gonna do me I, i i'm just independent like that that doesn't make any sense at all in the life of the church There is no such thing as independent like that. It's antithetical to the church. It's antithetical to the gospel itself. No one in history, and I'll say it again for emphasis, no one in all of human history has ever come to Jesus in their own independence. No one. It is precisely by giving up your independence and seeing your total dependence on Jesus that you are saved. Full stop. Back when we studied Romans together, however long ago that was now, we, we, we looked at this text in Romans 12 and, and we kind of threw out a hypothetical story of meeting someone who was missing a foot. Maybe you're here for that. Um, and so you're randomly walking down the street and you happen upon somebody who doesn't have a foot. What, what do you do? There could be a thousand different reasons that the person is missing a foot. Maybe they weren't born with it. Maybe they lost it in some kind of heroic moment. Maybe they lost it in some kind of really dumb, tragic moment. But whatever the story is, it's not really a story that everybody's really excited about telling all the time. Nobody really likes to tell the I lost my foot story. But there's, some, there's another thing you can assume about that. Like, like, like one... That person probably has a harder time now doing very simple tasks. The body's handicapped. Things are more difficult in some ways, maybe in a lot of ways. You can assume some things about the health of the body. You can also assume that there's something worthy of celebrating there in the the person that's figuring out and moving on with life even though they're missing a foot, right? There's something to applaud in, in their vigilance and in their effort. You can assume some things about that situation. The body is handicapped, but the the person is vigilant and perseveres, and there's plenty worthy of celebration there. But if we flip the parts of the story around, 
becomes a very different story. If you're walking down the sidewalk and you see a severed foot laying on the ground, are you interested in some things? Are you thinking to yourself, it's so great that that foot perseveres. Got to love their vigilance and determination to, to make life work even though it's harder. That foot is lifeless. That foot is dead, detached from the body. The tragic story is played out somewhere along the way. So, so what, is, I mean, what, is, what does our hypothetical story have to do with answering the why we gather question, right? I'm going to say it as simply as I can. Getting everybody in one place is a really easy way to make them feel connected. Right? Does anybody doubt that? Online platforms are constantly trying to sell us on the idea of community, right? Like that, that's, the, that's what they're driving at all the time. But the problem is that they never actually deliver on what they promise. Or, or maybe I'm wrong about that. Anybody think that the last year of digital-only options has made the world a more connected place? Yes? We're going with yes? No? Despite however polished we might try to make our online selves appear, at the end of the day, avatars are a terrible replacement for real relationships. And they always will be. It doesn't matter how lifelike the user experience is. It doesn't matter how complex the algorithm. Digital options can never be anything more than a supplement to genuine community. It's a, it's a nice add-on to real community. It can serve to, to bolster and build up real community, but it can never replace real community. At the end of the day, supplements can never be substitutes. They don't work like that. Whether we're talking about online stuff or we're talking about a thousand other things in life. Whenever you try to take something that's meant to be a a supplement and turn it into a substitute, it's always, and I mean always, going to fail. It can't do what the real thing does. But as hard as social media companies try their best to, to pull it off, there's this really simple yet incredibly special thing about sitting in the same room with a group of people you like. And it can do something that no forum or chat room or even video conference can ever, ever come close to pulling off. I think I really think that God in this last year has opened our eyes to how special his gift of community actually is, right? Don't we all feel it? Don't we get tired of this option and this option? We want the real thing. I know I do. By his good design, God has created us to be tangibly affected by the simple act of regularly gathering together. He's created us to, to need it. When we, when we finally grab a hold in, uh, of this reality, when we discover this reality to, to, to be true, we, we shift to a place where we go, I, I got to have me more of this. I need this. Even if others don't see it, I need this. Even if others don't value it, I need this. Even if others who don't understand what I understand mock it and trivialize it and say other things should be more important to me, I need this. I want this. Give me more. 
And so if you feel disconnected here, not saying it's the only reason, but maybe. Maybe, maybe it's because you haven't pressed in yet. It's possible. You're hanging out on the fringe. There's a disconnected foot. When you've been made to actually be connected to the body. Maybe that's what's going on. But it goes deeper than that, because look at verse 6. Paul keeps writing, he says this, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. All right, so what, what's the short version of what Paul's saying here? He's saying, he's saying that God has given all of his people, all of them, those who make up the, the local church, the local body of believers, he's given every one of them special skill sets and passions in order to serve and build up the rest of the church. That's what he's saying. That he has gifted individual members of the body for the purpose of strengthening the body. Not only does the regular gathering unite us together as a church family, just getting in the room makes us a, a stronger family, but it also becomes a platform for us to actually practice the loving service that he calls us to. It's the place where that gets to play out. Body parts do different things. Hands are really great for doing hand work. Livers do all the liver work. Elbows make really lousy ears. Different body parts do different things. And so God has gifted you in a specific way for a specific purpose. But that purpose is never, I mean ever, self-exalting. It's given in order to strengthen the rest of the body. So if you're keeping score at home, I got reason number one for you for the gathering. Reason number one for why we gather is that God uses the gathering to grow us and produce ministry through us as one body. You want a good reason to gather? That's a good reason to gather. God uses the gathering to grow us and produce ministry through us as one body. Do you want to grow? Do you want a platform for doing what God made you good at? It's here. It's found here. But I also promised you three reasons, and I'm running out of time, so we better keep moving. Head over to the book of Ephesians. It'd be to your right if you're new to the Bible. Long scroll past First and Second Corinthians and Galatians if you're using a device. Ephesians chapter 2. So Ephesians is another letter by the Apostle Paul. It's, uh, this time he's writing to a church in the city of Ephesus. Uh, and Ephesians is kind of a shorter, more succinct version of Romans logic, honestly. Uh, and so I really like Ephesians because Paul can be long-winded and Paul can be succinct. And, and I need to learn how to be succinct. All right, so Ephesians 2, starting in verse 19. Paul says this. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, verse 21, and in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 
All right, so uh, we see a lot of the same many pieces, one unit kind of language here, right? But this time, instead of being compared to a physical body, Paul is comparing, uh, comparing the church to a building, a brick building. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, right? And so out of a depth of love for you, I can confidently say that if God has called you to be a part of our family, you're an invaluable brick. Congratulations. What a lovely brick you are. All your rigid corners and rusty red complexion. Jesus is a brick too, so I guess we're in good company. Paul takes the building comparison beyond simply being united together here as a singular unit like he did with Romans 12. He says, he says that we are, we are united for a purpose. For a purpose. And what's that purpose? To be a temple for the Lord. Let that sit on you for a second. We are united together to be a temple for the Lord. And then in verse 22, he doubles down and says that the gathered church is a dwelling place for the Spirit. So let's talk about that for a second. So, so one of the things that the Bible teaches is that, uh, about as clearly as it teaches anything else, is that, is that when an individual person becomes a Christian, when they, uh, when they trust Jesus alone for salvation, when they submit to his lordship, the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit takes up residence within them. And that is a massive reality, right? Is, is that something we can celebrate this morning? Like, like, has anybody got like a better thing worthy of celebrating this morning? We can just sit back here and wait for, for some people to come up with something more awesome to talk about. God takes residence in you. The Bible teaches that there is not a single moment, not one, from the time that Jesus saves you to the time that he takes you home to be with him forever, that you are ever, ever alone. Some of you are old enough to remember the old gospel song, right? No, never alone. Never alone, no, never alone. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. No, never alone, no, never alone. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. Incredibly simple earth-shaking true. The Bible teaches that you get him now and you get him forever in a somehow more fuller reality. But according to verse 22 here, you don't have to wait for that fuller reality. You can get a taste of that fuller reality today. Where? In the gathering of the saints. And when he, there's something special that happens in this place when God's people gather as one people. There's a spiritual reality to what is happening in that moment when they gather together in that specific space and time, an indwelling of the Holy Spirit that is fuller and deeper and somehow better than what you could ever, ever experience all on your own. You get Him. And we all kind of 
instinctively know this to be true, right? Like every one of us has found ourselves in a moment in church where the music swelled or something was said in a specific way and it lit you up. Everything in you resonated and wanted to shout and everything in, in that moment drew your heart closer to God in that moment. And, and it's, uh, so here's something that needs to be thought through carefully. Either A, that's some kind of weird emotional byproduct of getting together, or B, that may be a core reason for why God has given us the church. How about, how about we go with B? Sound better to you? That sounds like a much better option than weird emotional byproduct. Now he's, he's given us the gathering of the saints to experience him deeper and to whet our appetites for what is to come future, eternal realities. So if you find yourself in a place where where you really, truly want more of God, where you long to experience Him at a deeper level, listen, the answer is not to go the monk route. It's not to sequester yourself off and seclude yourself off and spend all your time in quiet devotion and prayer to unlock some great truth and virtue. Those things aren't bad in of themselves, but that's not what the Bible prescribes. If you want more of God, if you want to experience Him deeper than you could all on your own, it's not to isolate yourself. It's actually to press into the community of the church. Simply put, if you want as much of Jesus as you can get, the route to getting there is to press more fervently into all the messed up people in this room. Full stop. And so reason number one for why we gather is that God uses the gathering to grow us and use us for ministry. Here's reason number two. God uses the gathering to give us more of himself than we would ever get on our own. We're going to act like that's a good enough reason to gather. (laughs) It's probably a good enough reason to gather. Think we can bring the same energy for reason number three? Matthew 8, 18. Matthew 18. So I'm going to go ahead and guess that our third reason this morning is going to be harder for people to grab their head, wrap their heads around than the first two reasons. And probably the reason for that is that this text gets butchered just about every time it gets trotted out. Um, that being said, though, I think if we see it correctly, um, it will forever change how we see what we do in this room. Matthew 18, starting in verse 15, Jesus says this, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. All right, so let's call time out there. Okay, so this text, most people rightly associate it with with church discipline. And, And we've covered this topic from various other angles in the past over the last few years, but... 
Jesus here, he, he lays out the pattern uh, for, for what to do when, uh, when you need to handle the conflict that just kind of naturally arises out of sin. You put two sinners in a room for long enough, sparks are eventually going to fly, things are going to happen that need to be dealt with. And so Jesus kind of lays out this pathway for walking through that conflict management of calling people uh, to, to repent of sin. And, and so, and what I love the most, I think, about this text is that, that it assumes a posture of wanting deeper good for your brother than what you even want for yourself, right? It assumes that, that you want better for them than what is safe for you. Uh, if you know your Bibles well, then you know that Matthew kind of, uh, he places Jesus's words here in verse 15 right after the parable of the lost sheep. Do you remember that story? There's a shepherd who's got 99 sheep. He notices that one's gone. What do they do? They leave the 99, the big old pile of money and meat, to go get the one. Like if you're doing the economic math in your head, that's not a smart move. And so at risk to greater loss, he pursues. He pursues. Makes it explicitly clear that we are to lovingly engage, even at great cost to ourselves, that we are to go after those who have strayed. So Jesus, in verse 15 through 18 here, he says that if your brother sins against you, go let him know. Go tell him. It's not an opportunity for accusation. It's an opportunity for repentance and reconciliation to win the day. That's what you're gunning for there. The problem with that is that we live in an incredibly broken, sin-filled world, and so sinful hearts don't always repent like they're supposed to, right? Imagine that. Even when you're trying to be helpful, when you're trying to lovingly engage, sometimes that lost sheep bites back. And so if they refuse to repent, Jesus says, bring in some witnesses. As a note, witnesses, not witnesses to the offense, witnesses to ensure that things are being handled in a, in a Christ-like way, Christ-like manner. And so it doesn't have to be the case, but oftentimes this is kind of where church leadership is brought in to kind of act as kind of a mediating uh, presence. But... But sadly, that doesn't always work either. Even when you put that little more pressure on them. And for whatever reason, despite your loving efforts to pursue them, if your Christian brother still refuses to repent, Jesus says, bring it to who? The church, to the ecclesia, the gathering. And a failure to repent once it's reached that stage actually has serious consequences. Kicking them out of the fellowship. Jesus says to treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, as someone who apparently doesn't believe the things that God's people believe. Treat them as somebody who doesn't trust the gospel. Treat them as somebody who, who is outside of the body of believers. You may be thinking to yourself, well, that sounds a little harsh, doesn't it? No. No, it really, it really doesn't. That only sounds harsh if you're trying to hang on to some kind of imaginary freedom to define your own version of righteousness instead of Jesus's. That, that only sounds harsh if you think that a door needs to be left open for Jesus's commands to sometimes bend to your preferences. That's not harsh at all. It's supposed to be eye-opening. Jesus says that if someone is continuing in their unrepentance, treat them as one who is outside of the kingdom of God. 
And there are a couple of absolutely massive assumptions buried in Jesus' logic there. One, it assumes that, that the church knows who actually belongs to the body and who doesn't. Like it's, there's an accounting there that, that's assumed. Church membership is often dismissed wholesale um, in a lot of church growth circles and a lot of more modern churches. Uh, it's kind of painted as this backwards, backwoods old way of, of doing things. But, and, and people are quick to point out, rightly so, that the Bible never explicitly mentions church membership. And so, it, I mean, you're never going to be able to turn somewhere and find a command to, to, to be a member of a local church anywhere in the Bible. That's absolutely true. Um, and so, um, but what's missed, though, is that Church membership is, is really nothing more than a practical attempt to flesh out some things that are clearly commanded in the Bible, like, like this one. And so there's, there's a ton of stuff happening within the context of the New Testament church that doesn't make any sense at all without also assuming some form, some style of, of membership structure. And so, and so we practice church membership here, not because we think it's an end in itself, but because we want to try to be obedient to all the things we do see. Right? And so it's a second-level need. There's a second thing assumed in Jesus' logic here, that logic in dealing with the unrepentant sinner, and it's, it's kind of huge. It's that he gives the gathered body, the ecclesia, he gives it the authority to act on his behalf. Look at verse 18. Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Verse 20, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. All right, so verse 20 there is often thrown around as kind of to celebrate the sweet presence of Jesus whenever God's people hang out together, right? Problem, though, is that Jesus ain't so sweet here. Um, He's saying that no matter how small the gathering is, his people carry his authority. That's what he just said. Gathering in his name, it's not a cute way of describing fellowship. It actually means something. We gather in an official capacity to act as a representative of our king. We do what he commands us to do. And this is the same posture that Paul took a few months ago when we looked at, at 1 Corinthians 6 together. If you, uh, you remember back then, the leaders in Corinth had phoned in their responsibility to adjudicate trivial things in the life and ministry of the church. They were allowing church members to, to run off and, and go get their problems settled uh, in the secular courts. And so that, that, that wasn't just a bad look to outsiders. It was that, but it's way more than that. It was also a terrible moment of failing to be the ambassadors that God had called them to be. They had completely neglected their responsibility to act with the authority that Jesus had already given them. And so back in Matthew 18, Jesus tells them that that whenever they find themselves in this situation, that they are to deal with the sin as he would deal with it. And they should deal with the unrepentant sinner as he would deal with the unrepentant sinner. Whatever the ecclesia does in his name, on his behalf, is going to be backed up by him. That's what he's saying. And this sheds a light on a massive reality that I really don't think a lot of Christians have spent very much time at all thinking through. At the end of the day, gathering as the church body is a fundamentally countercultural activity. 
It's not just a place where we hang out on Sunday morning because we couldn't get a brunch arrangement. It is a counter-cultural activity. It is a political act. Not in the petty party politics of our temporary home, but in the eternity-sized politics of our future kingdom. It's a political act. We carry a loyalty here that outstrips and outpaces every other loyalty. And part of what we're doing here is showing that loyalty off. When we gather... And when we preach God's word, and when we sing praises of adoration to our good king, we are declaring in that moment where our true citizenship is actually found. Regardless of what our passport might say today, we know where our home really is. It's right to call this place an embassy. It is. When a church is properly ordered, it is a small taste of the eternal realities that Jesus is building for us. You want to formalize reason number three? Here it is. God uses the gathering to declare the advancement and ultimate victory of his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. God uses the gathering to declare the advancement and ultimate victory of his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Not exactly something you want to make a habit of missing. Too much going on here for that. So what do we do with this stuff, right? Like, how in the world do you respond to God's word this morning? Well, if you're already a follower of Jesus, our response is the same as it is every single week, right? We, We repent of sin and we lean into what God is revealing about himself in the text. And this week, man, I... I think he's showing us that, that it is his incomprehensible goodness to us that led him to give us the church. It's not just the side benefit that comes after we're saved. No, he's given it to us for this incredibly glorious purpose to walk with us, to, to, to grow us and, and, and send us out for ministry. And he's given it to give us more of himself. And he's given it to us so that, that we might like, actually be his representatives in this broken place. It's not this side project. It is the natural and beautiful result of, the, of saving a people for himself. If we see the regular gathering of the saints as anything less than something we desperately need more of, then we don't see it correctly. And we likely don't see him correctly either. Does that mean that there aren't problems here? No, we got a bunch. I'm in the front of that list. We got all kinds of sinful baggage and awkward moments. Pay attention longer for, than, for longer than 30 seconds and you can add a list of your own. It'll be fun. We, all, we got all kinds of junk and yet, and yet it is out of our awkwardness that God seems to make himself more famous, Right? The beauty of the church is not found in our excellence. It is found in the graciousness of our God to take this and somehow use it for his glory and our good. In spite of this, he does it anyways. In spite of this, holy cow. 
So if you're invested here, here's your opportunity to fall deeper in love with, what, with the good gift that God has given you this morning. And, and if you're not invested here yet, if you're on the fringe here, it's time to connect the severed foot to the body, isn't it? The body hurts without you. It's handicapped for sure. But it'll press on in a determined vigilance. But body parts don't fare so well when they're cut off. You're only hurting yourself, and so press in. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, man, I'm glad you're hanging out with us today. I, re- I really am. Um, I hope that you've seen things that are attractive here. I hope that you've seen things that you can point to and say, yeah, I want more of that in my life, and I want more of that in, of my, in my life. But really, I, I, I really hope that you have seen, you've been even more impressed with Jesus. And listen, you can respond to his word today as well, and you can do that by meeting him. So the Bible teaches that by default, your, your sin separates you from a holy God. It is owed, it deserves his righteous wrath. But God, who is rich in mercy and loves you with a great love, even when you are dead in your trespass and sin, he makes you alive with him. He came himself, dwelt among us, lived a sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living. He died on the cross as a substitute to make payment, full and final payment for your sin. He was raised again from the dead as a vindication of His perfect and sufficient righteousness. And He calls on you in this moment to respond to Him in repentance and in faith and to turn away from your sin and to turn to Him as Savior and Lord. And you can do that this morning. You can respond to Jesus by meeting Jesus, I'd love to be helpful to you. I'll be down front if you want somebody to talk to about it. But whoever you are, however God is calling you to respond this morning, let's respond together as a gathered people. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for Romans 12 and Ephesians and Matthew. I know my heart well enough to know that Even though I'm here every week, I can get into the routine and I can fall into the rut of believing that this is just another thing to do. And that's because my eyes have been dimmed to massive, earth-shaking realities. I've grown numb to things that will forever change the cosmos. Open my eyes to see. Help me see this and what we do here the same way you do. Give me a zeal to be here that that overwhelms the, the frustration moments and overwhelms the insufficiency moments and overwhelms the attitude moments in my own heart. You're good. And we have not even begun to plumb the depths of the good things you've given. But we trust that you're the good giver. So help us love you more even than your gifts. Father, for those who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known this morning? Open eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to know. Draw men and women to yourself by your glory and your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.